0: one bomb
1: on hiroshima mr gorbachev tear down this the american people i think is good people they are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies
0: start. Welcome back to the uh, Cold War podcast episode 65. Halo, Ray, how's your butt feeling, Ray?
1: It's like Vegas, it's recovering. Post, yeah, anyway, anyway, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting there.
0: Did they find my keys? That's what I want to know when they were up there, because I haven't been able to find um, them anywhere since Vegas.
1: Yeah, yeah. I thought you were joking at first, but, but no. So that, I will mail those. I will yeah. clean those off and mail it to you. That
0: jingling noise that you always heard when you were walking around. You never <laughs> just, stopped to think, what is that?
1: I, what is that? You just I thought just, it was in your head. I just like, <laughs> no. I just thought it was so cool that when I walked, I jingled. <laughs> Jingle Ray, Jingle Ray, Jingle (laughs) Ray, right. Uh, Today on
0: the show, folks, uh, we're going to do an interview uh, with uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Nyberg. Michael is the Professor of History, Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College. Wow. Now, Impressive. obviously, a uh, very lefty communist organization, the U.S. Army War College, so I'm sure he's going to agree with my views on uh, <laughs> uh, totally. The, the, totally. The, uh, the world. Now, look, uh, he wrote a book. He's written several books, but uh, he wrote a book a couple of years ago on the Potsdam Conference that uh, Ray and I have both read. Terrific book. Um, good speaker, watched a couple of his YouTube videos. I think yeah, you have as well, smooth. right? Smooth motherfucker, this yeah. guy, yeah. <laughs> so, we're gonna get him on and uh, just have a bit of a chat about uh, the Potsdam conference. So, I thought about doing this at the end, get him to summarize after we've done it, but now I thought, nah, let's just do it up front. Nah, and and yeah, because really, after doing 25 episodes of Yalta, um. Yeah. We made a decision we're not going to do that with Potsdam. We could. Potsdam went longer than Yalta.
1: (laughs) But. 24 and a half episodes. Yeah. Is what I think we've decided on. Yeah. But we we already
0: kind of understand the key issues that are dividing these three. Um, Even though the personalities change somewhat at Potsdam, even though there's the introduction of the bomb during Potsdam. Uh, and, and things are a little bit different. Uh, you know, some of the positions of the various parties change. I don't think we need to spend 25 episodes uh, getting into the nitty gritty and the weeds with this one. So I think getting Nyberg on at the beginning will help us just kind of set the whole thing up so we can breeze through it in a few episodes. Right. Um, Absolutely. Focus more on. Yeah, you know, a little bit of the personality changes, some of the new characters right. that come in that we need to talk about, because they're gonna have a big impact on things. And 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 a little bit about how the big issues um sort of twisted in the wind a little bit with the introduction of these new uh, characters. Their, their positions didn't change much. The the I right. mean, obviously Merrick is now represented by Truman and his chosen entourage obviously uh, uh mr sure. churchill is replaced in the middle of potsdam with mr Attlee and his entourage mm-hmm. which we'll get into in some detail but um their their their, their overall positions don't change dramatically although they do right. they do wiggle and twist a little bit around some of the earlier discussions But not, very very hard for truman to stick to what happened at yalta <laughs> because he doesn't know what happened at yalta and anyway, they still haven't found the yalta dark the Yalta notes you seen the
1: Yalta papers yeah I, I I'm fucking sure I, there. so- I left it here yeah. I'm sure I, I left it sitting on that table yeah keys cell phone Yalta notes <laughs> um, no I can't find them shit
0: fucking, that still just boggles my mind how they yeah. can
1: that that in Kennedy's brain they haven't found either one.
0: one oh that's <laughs> a fucking dark way to start the day right shit shit man
1: sorry. Wow. if you've gone what I've gone through in the last 24 hours have they
0: have they checked yeah. uh, Jackie's coat because I think a lot of his brain was <laughs> over her coat
1: oh God no Connolly
0: did they check Connolly's no. coat because I think someone was over Connolly's coat
1: probably in his cowboy seat yeah yeah
0: fucking dark yeah. man Jesus um
1: yeah. sorry. Uh, Also,
0: before we get started on this... Well, actually, I'm just stalling because I'm waiting for Nyberg to turn up on Skype. Um, (laughs) uh, If you haven't noticed, uh, a couple of things. We are plugging the shit out of our Europe 2018 tour. I think we've sort of uh, nearly full on that. But if you haven't registered, you want to come to Greece, Italy and France with us in uh, sort of July 2018... Go up to com and have a look for the link to the Europe tour. Yeah. Register your interest. Uh, tell us you want to come. Uh, our Renaissance show, which is replacing the Alexander show, is going to launch at the end of December. Uh, mm-hmm. e- even if you haven't listened to the Alexander, obviously you're listening to this, one of our other premium shows, uh, Renaissance is going to be right. great. It's going to be a hoot. Um, yes. And I'm really looking forward. I'm a little bit a little bit nervous about starting it. I don't know about you.
1: I think we both were. I think we both were at the beginning of all of our shows, and then we get into it, and we have a lot of fun with it, and we learned a lot along the way, and that's the whole point of this.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I've been reading a ton of books. really excited. Nyberg's here, so we'll jump into that. Um, also, I just wanted to plug the fact that I've been. Um, I'm doing live AMAs, Ask Me Anything's on our Life of Caesar podcast, our Facebook page, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Just because uh, people keep saying, you know, you guys should do some more live stuff, and it's just too fucking hard. But I thought I'll just sit down every Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. Brisbane time, and do it. And uh, and we did one last week, and it was good. going to try and figure out how to yep. do you, uh, get you in um, on it, or maybe you just do your own. Save us talking over the top of each other. Um, yep. All right, Nyberg is here. I'm going to call him
2: in now, if I can make this work. You can do it. <laughs> My name is Michael Nyberg. I uh, work here in central Pennsylvania teaching uh, U.S. Army colonels and international officers. And I've long had an interest in uh, kind of how wars begin and how wars end and how societies make adjustments as they're going through wars. Um, And my intellectual interests are international and transnational by nature. So though I'm trained in U.S. and French history, my my interests kind of wander everywhere, everywhere that I can.
0: Well, we we share your interest in all of those things. We well, I was just saying in our introduction, we did twenty five hours on the Yalta Conference, and I've assured <laughs> everyone we're not going to do that with Potsdam because I think we've already given us given them a good sort of uh, coverage of the key issues. I had one first question before we set off. Do you ever get confused with Aaron Sorkin and uh, how do you feel about that?
2: No, should I? Well, you look you look, yeah, you look very similar. Like Cam, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I usually get Hank Azaria when people are talking about oh. uh, uh, celebrities, right. which I don't. Uh, I don't get that. I don't see that one either. No,
0: I don't see the no, Hank Azaria. <laughs> not not to say that he's not a very handsome man.
1: <laughs> he is. Yeah. Your your profile though, your profile with Aaron Storkin, uh, I can see why Cam asked that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just oh, the, okay.
0: it's it's the glasses that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, now. Uh, Am I right in believing that uh, your full title is something to do with the Henry L. Stimson Chair or something of history?
2: Uh, I was. Uh, they've moved me to another um, another chair, which was kind of unusual because you know Henry Stimson was a was a terrible anti-Semite. So I, I sometimes got uh, a little bit of joy in knowing that a, a Jewish intellectual had uh, had the chair named for, a, for such a nasty guy. Um, <laughs> But, uh, no, they've, they've moved me into a different position now. Um, called the, they're calling it Chair of War Studies. Wow. That sounds impressive. Um, I, yeah, yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, we're trying something a little different. This position is uh, partly funded by a private foundation to give me a little bit more time and space to travel and to do some things. Terrific.
0: Now I, I um in, in researching the US Army War College, I discovered that Abdel Fattah el Sisi, the current president of Egypt, graduated <laughs> there in two thousand and six. So congratulations to everybody at the US and Army is, War
2: College. Well, I I'd say that was well before I got there. Um yeah. and, and you know, I, I it's it's interesting. It's neither here nor there, but I have talked to uh colleagues of mine who have taught people who have gone on to be general officers and gone on to do some pretty important things and um they always tell me it's, it's not always quite so easy. It's not like there's a guy in the room and you look at him and you say, that guy's going to be a chief of staff of an army, or in this case, even a head of state. Um, but I, you know, I haven't met CC. I've met people who've taught him, but that's about my, the closest I can claim to that. Hmm.
0: It's always fascinating when you see presidents of
2: Middle Eastern or Latin American countries that
0: studied at American uh, military colleges. Yeah. Yeah. Always, yeah. Always, yeah. Yeah. Mind wanders. Um, well, look, but before we get into the um, weeds with Potsdam, uh, can we talk a little bit about, what I'd like to do, is, if we can, is just get you to give us a, a couple of minutes on the key protagonists, your thoughts on them uh, circa this point in time, uh, July 1945. Let's start with the new president of the United
2: States, uh, President Truman. Well, I think the thing that was most surprising interesting, I guess, to me about Truman is that that somehow, despite the evident illness of Franklin Roosevelt, despite the fact that Truman really should have been given a kind of crash on the job training kind of course, uh, nobody thought it important to do that. So at this remarkable moment in history, when so much seems to be at stake, Truman came into the White House with almost no preparation. I mean, the story goes that they inaugurated him took him into a side room and had to explain to him what the Manhattan Project was because he didn't know about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's someone who's coming in almost from nothing. And um, I have to say, flaws notwithstanding, I came to really admire the way that Truman kind of got over the shock. And people were genuinely shocked when Roosevelt died, despite his uh, evident health problems, and how quickly Truman got to work not only to learn what he needed to learn, but to change the personalities around him, to, to get rid of people he didn't trust and to get people around him with whom he thought he could engage and have debates, even if he knew they were going to be people that he might not agree with. So in that moment of crisis, I came to really admire what what Truman did, even though I don't think it's my job as an historian necessarily to admire or or condemn most historical figures. And it's not something that I went into the project to do, but I think he can't help but admire the way that he took control of a situation and did the very best that he thought he could do.
0: He didn't. He didn't think much of uh, Henry Stimson, did he?
2: No, he didn't, he didn't think much of most of the people around Roosevelt. He thought of them as as people who were uh, from you know Ivy League backgrounds, and that's how they got in uh, to the positions that they were in. Truman himself had no college education at all. He's the last American president without a college degree. Um, And he saw these as people that that got where they got by wealth and by connections and by um, sucking up to Roosevelt. Um, He got rid of a lot of people like that. The secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, was another one that Truman just had no faith in whatsoever. Secretary of State Cordell Hull, uh, all of these people. And he just very quickly went about replacing them with people that he had a little bit more faith in.
1: If I can ask, if I follow up question
2: to that, yes, it's true that, yeah, they probably bumped
1: into each other country clubs or maybe their fathers went to school together. But the point is these guys were there with FDR through the war, through the various conferences before Potsdam. So even though they might have gotten where they were through um, social networks, the point is they have the knowledge and they have the experience. I just still have a hard time wrapping my head around him. Okay, I'm going to bring in my own team uh, because I don't respect how you guys got the job. But they've got the knowledge that he that he needs. So I just thought that was very gutsy on his part.
2: Yeah. So yes and no to your to your to your point. Yes, they had Mm -hmm. been in the Roosevelt administration. But it's fascinating when Truman went around to those advisors and asked them, what did we agree at Yalta? What did we actually agree to do? And no one can actually tell him. So, uh, you know, there's no official. The the official documents of the of the Yalta conference are not there for Truman to to reference. Um, everybody he talks to has a different interpretation of what they thought that had been agreed to. Uh-huh. So to me, it's not unreasonable for Truman to have looked around and said, yes, these people were physically present, but they clearly didn't have a grasp of the main issues and the main problems. So bringing in new people isn't really like starting from nothing, uh, because in his mind, he's starting from nothing already. Did they ever find the Yalta papers? To the best of my knowledge, no. I mean, maybe after the war, but <laughs> right. they never—they they did not find them in time for Potsdam. So this is one of the problems. When when Truman got to Potsdam, he really couldn't push back against the Russians, who were kind of saying to him, "No, no, we have a different interpretation of what was said." And and here here we do have official transcripts, although granted they're in Russian, translated and you know whatever. <laughs> uh, but Truman can't go back and say, "Well, no, no, this is what American officials wrote down." Because they're simply not there, which is to me absolutely fascinating.
0: Wow, us too. We were just we were just sort of laughing over the fact that I know they'd gone down the back of the couch or something. Somebody had uh, right, yeah. lost. Like it's astounding. The, all those things you mentioned. The fact that with Roosevelt's health declining, uh, and according to the diaries of the people that were with him at Yalta. He, he wasn't in the best uh, form. He was obviously really, really struggling for large parts of the Alta Conference. They, they, they didn't have. Uh, well, I mean, the, the fact that Truman was the Veep anyway instead of right. Burns is, right. uh, is, is the first thing that boggles the mind. Secondly, that they didn't have him prepped ready to go. And then thirdly, that they couldn't find the Yalta notes when the
2: day came. It's astounding, really. You know, not only did they not have him prepped, they had an opportunity to prep him and actively did not do it. So the the best conclusion I can reach is that that the people around Roosevelt, who had been president since 1933, just could not envision a world without Roosevelt at that critical moment. And Mm. I also suspect Roosevelt's relationship with the, the State Department was bad enough. That my, my sense is, Roosevelt didn't want the State Department to be the group taking the notes. But if it's not State doing it, then there's really nobody that's gonna do it. So I suspect he was more—he Roosevelt—was willing to rely on his own version of what he thought he had agreed to than to trust his own State Department. Which is, you know, mm. another—you know—I'm a great admirer of much of what Franklin Roosevelt did, though certainly not all. But clearly, by 1945, you, you've created a massive series of problems that could have ended. Much worse than they did, though. Your final, your, your your last point, of course, is correct. If you're worried about succession, then James Burns is the obvious follow-on candidate. The flaws in Burns, notwithstanding, instead they went to a guy who everybody was surprised got picked, and that was Harry Truman.
0: All right, let's move on and talk about Prime Minister Churchill. What are your thoughts on Churchill at this juncture?
2: You know, I think Churchill by 1945, I think is is aware of a couple of cold realities, one of which is that although Britain came out of this war, like World War I, nominally on the victorious side, if Britain was in a really tough position at the end of the Second World War, um, quite possibly even tougher than at the end of the First World War. Uh, They were deeply in debt to the United States. Um, I've had this discussion with some British colleagues. In my own view, uh, the special relationship meant very little to the United States, except Mm. where British and American interests overlapped very closely. Otherwise, the Americans were willing to, you know, open up the imperial preference system, force British gold to be moved from London to New York, to do all these things. Um, they were also aware that that France was in tatters, Italy was in tatters, Germany was in tatters, the Soviet Union was going to be a potential threat. They had trouble everywhere from India to Palestine to all over the place. So, I you know, I, I see Churchill as being aware of that and, and recognizing that the best hope he had was to— really make that special relationship into something in reality that it had only really been rhetorically. And that meant that the that the Great Britain was going to have to work very closely with whatever the United States wanted to get out of Potsdam.
1: If I could just add on to the, um, you were talking about the poverty of Britain. You mentioned in one interview that Britain was on food rations, uh, you know,
2: th- yeah, through part of 1950. Oh my, that's just staggering to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, you talk to Brits, uh, British citizens and Britons from those days and, um, you know, it, it it was better in London and, and Manchester and Birmingham and parts of those cities than it was in rural places like Wales and in the highlands of Scotland, where, you know, people were really on subsistence rations. And, and, you know, it's true in continental Europe as well. But you think of Britain as being on the on the victorious side and you think of Britain as as one of the great victors of the Second World War. Uh, but they're broke. I mean, they're. They're completely out of money. They're going to Canada to beg these multi-million dollar, hundred and fifty million dollar, and more loans out of Canada. Um, you know, people. I think I think Britons who survived through that period remember it like I remember my grandparents talking about the Great Depression, about just you know how impoverished they were. And again, this was coming out of a victory. This was coming out of a win. And so I think Churchill was perfectly well aware of the problems Britain was going to face in the post-war world. And I suspect he was smart enough to recognize that even if he won the 1945 elections, which he certainly expected to do, that the problems going forward for Great Britain were going to be every bit as challenging as the problems that they had to deal with in the war years. But that Churchill – Churchill was a, was a foreign policy wartime president – He or excuse me, prime minister – He wasn't really intellectually ready, I think, to deal with the challenges that Britain was going to face. And, of course, that's why Labour has this shocking win in 1945.
0: And in your book, you uh, refer to the the diaries and some of the letters of Churchill's own entourage, Anthony Eden, Lord Moran, people like that. They don't seem to be describing his uh, performance in the first part of Potsdam as uh, that inspiring. He seems to be uh, even more dithering and uh, 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 lost than he was at points of the altar conference.
2: Do you think he's just worn out, tired, drunk? I think maybe a little of all of those things, and it's not unreasonable to expect. I mean, just to think about the stress that he must have been under and the difficulties that he was trying to work through, uh, it's not unreasonable to imagine a man who's just exhausted after all of this. Uh, we do know, I mean, I, I think I made, I think I said this in the in the book, although I know I've said it in other forums, historians have tended to treat Churchill's alcoholism as something, you know, juvenile and almost frat boy kind of jokish, but it was a serious problem. And people around him knew it was a serious problem. Um, people joking about, oh, you know, Churchill didn't get out of bed until 1 p.m., he was hungover. Um, and, you know, those are not good qualities in a situation like that. So, you know, I, and I also think, you know, my favorite comment, I think, came from Alan Brooke in Alan Brooke's diaries mm-hmm. when Alan Brooke first heard about the atomic bomb test, the Trinity test. And Churchill is running around saying, well, this is it. This is how we'll bully the Soviets. And Alan Brooke has this wonderful, wonderful paragraph where he just says, look, you know, I, I had to shatter his outlook and he didn't like it. He didn't understand that you just cannot use these weapons the way you use conventional weapons. He just didn't get it. Mm. And Alan Brooke, who I think is one of the great strategists of, of this period of history, understood immediately what, what the atomic weapons were going to do. They were going to change the very definition of what strategy was.
0: I think Brooke said... You have to realize we we use it once and then we'll never be able to use it again or something to that effect,
2: right? We'll be the war criminals if we use them. Um, yeah. And then, you know, this leads to a debate in the post-war period where finally Ernest Bevin is the guy who makes that statement. We have to have our own bomb and it's got to have a great big bloody Union, Union jack, jack on it. <laughs> you know, and, and the French make the same decision that wow. that you can't rely on the United States to use those weapons in a deterrent kind of capability in the way that you would want them to do it. So, you know, it's an unbelievably complicated problem, and I don't think it's unreasonable to understand that Churchill didn't grasp what it was at first. But it is all part of this process at the end of, of, of the Second World War of Britain really trying to struggle forward. If you can't feed your own people, how can you invest in these kinds of weapons technologies unless the United States is willing to play a role to help you? And speaking of having
0: access to a bomb, Uncle Joe... He wanted one as well. Um, tell us about Uncle Joe, circa July 1945.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, it's easy to look at Stalin in the kind of stereotypical way of a, of a paranoid, uh, delusional, maybe even mentally unbalanced dictator. And he was all of those things in part. But he was also someone that understood that his country had had 20 to 25 million people dead. I mean, I tell people, I tell academic audiences this all the time. The, the, the gap between our low number and our high number, that is the margin of uncertainty of Soviet Union deaths in the Second World War, the margin of uncertainty well exceeds the total deaths by the United States and Great Britain many times over. So for a society that has suffered the way that it has suffered, Stalin was absolutely adamant that this peace would be a Soviet peace. And he also understood that most of the traditional cards to play in that game, he held them. He had the largest army. He had the largest pieces of territory. He had the admiration of many people in Central and Eastern Europe for having defeated the Nazis. All of those things were playing into his hands. So, you know, this is a guy who came to Potsdam, in my view, less to negotiate than to say this is the way this is going to be in the post-war world. And if you're not on board, let's find out about that right now.
0: I'm interested in your view on uh, particularly in the job that you do at the U.S. Army War College. what the understanding is you feel in in terms of uh the american military senior american military figures about stalin and the role of the red army in the defeat of the nazis because we get into this conversation constantly trying to help um you know the the general public understand and quite often we get into debates with americans trying to unders- help th- th- there seems to be a big gap i think on behalf of lots of people in the general public about the role that the soviets played in defeating the nazis they don't seem to appreciate the amount of no. people who died and and the the you know just the general uh, level of commitment that the soviets gave to that do you, how do you find that issue is it something that's recognized and appreciated at the sort of levels that you deal with or is or or, or is does this 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 sort of, I don't know, ignorance about the role of the Soviets in World War II? Is it more prevalent in the United States?
2: Well, I think, you know, among the general public, there's a problem simply because for decades through the Cold War, the United States had a sort of motivation to say, no, it was us who won the war. And I I sometimes jokingly talk about the the band of brothers problem where, where uh, you know, as much as that series kind of captured American imaginations it did kind of give the message that my uncle and four of his buddies beat the nazis you know without really understanding the kind of wider global problem but among professionals i would say and i'm by this i mean professional historians security professionals military professionals there's a deep understanding uh, that this was a global war a world war and moreover a, a, you know most americans that i know most american officers that i know at some point or another have been stationed in germany where it's pretty hard to miss the giant Soviet memorials that that are there. Um, there's one right by the Reichstag in Berlin, and there's another enormous one in the former East in, a, in Treptow Park. I think it's the largest war memorial anywhere in the world uh, in terms of the acreage, the size that it that it, that it it occupies. Uh, and it's hard not to live around those things. It's hard not to live in Europe, talk to Germans, um, as the Americans, of course, have taken a bigger interest in Eastern Europe and places like Poland in the last, since they fall followed the Berlin Wall. Um, and not come to an appreciation of of the the wider global dimensions of this. Um, I find the the Soviet role has come back into uh, an understanding much more than it had. We're now beginning really, I think, to appreciate what the Second World War did to China, uh, which is another enormous part of this that we don't talk about very much. But the millions of people who died in China during the Second World War, uh, both from the war against japan and famine and all the other things that 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 hit china rather badly and how that's beginning to impact the way that or began to impact the way that china saw the outside world down to today so Hmm. to answer your question quite quite simply i think most people who do this for a living and who take a serious interest in this as opposed to just watching a movie on the history channel or something um understand the global dimensions and that means understanding the soviet dimension as well
0: i one of the things that has uh struck me time and time again particularly as we we were covering the altar conference is looking at Stalin's demands st- the outcomes that Stalin wanted to get out of these negotiations um, you know he he wants a, a, a cordon sanitaire around Russia we keep making the point that in his lifetime uh, Russia had been invaded twice through the mm. Polish corridor um, so he wants he wants Better defence, uh, and he wants reparations so he can rebuild the, the utter destruction that uh, the Soviet countries had been through. They seem like entirely reasonable demands that he's after. Do you feel that anything he's trying to achieve at Yalta and Potsdam is unreasonable? If you were in his
2: shoes, would be you be looking for something different? Well, I think I think your your point is exactly well taken. That, that the Soviet Union had been invaded twice. Uh, any head of state is gonna is gonna take it upon himself to make sure that they do what they can to prevent it happening again. Uh, and you have to also remember the way that the First World War ended for Russia, which was the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was incredibly one sided. And then they went into a revolution and they went into a civil war. So that you know, this period in Russian history is not just about the end of the first world war. It's about the way that the post-war period comes to a, a crashing end for, for the old Romanov dynasty. And, um, you know, there's also concern, you know, the United States av- in 1919 had sent troops into northern, into Siberia. Um, you know, there is concern that if you're displaying weakness to the outside world, that you're leaving yourself open to the same kinds of traumas in the post-World War II period that you were in the post-World War One period. Um, there's also quite a bit of evidence, certainly not everybody, but that plenty of people in Eastern and Central Europe saw the Soviet Union, at least in that initial period, it goes away pretty quickly, but at least in that initial period as a liberating army, that, that they had been the ones that came through, that 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 liberated the first death camps, that, you know, got rid of the Nazis. Uh, now, the, the charm, quote unquote, uh, in inverted commas of the Soviets and the Red Army is going to go away pretty quick. But for a period, there is a time when when they're welcome. They're brought in as liberators, and Stalin and his Molotov, the folks around him, can envision creating a world uh, in which you can create relatively co-equal, relatively peaceful relationships with the states on the Soviet Union's border. Now, again, as that goes away, those relationships become significantly harsher and much more one-sided. Uh, but it's not unreasonable to get to the end of, the, of a war like that one and say, what do I have to do to secure my state? Mm. The, the, the question, of course, is how much of that securing is incompatible, if you're an American or, or, or a Briton, how much of that is incompatible with what we want to create? And how much of that can we really live with? Uh, if, you know, how much of a concern really is the future of Poland to the United States? And that's an open debate that Americans in 1945 don't agree on. There are some that, you know, if the Soviets take over Poland, it is an existential threat to the United States. There are plenty of other people saying it really doesn't affect our central interests at all.
0: Yeah, I, I enjoyed watching one of your lectures when I think somebody in the audience during the Q and A asked you who's 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 looking out
2: for Poland at Potsdam, and you said nobody, no one really nobody. cares, <laughs>
0: yeah, no one cares. Yeah, no, yeah. nobody.
2: I mean, it's it's a bit of an irony of history that it was you know Poland in 1939 that brought Britain and France into the war, at least technically and legally. You know, there's this kind of phony war period where they say they're going to fight for Poland, but they don't. Mm. Um, but there's there's nobody who's willing to take the peace that they just won and put it at risk over Poland. There's nobody willing to do that.
0: And, and as you said before, quite frankly, with the size and location of the Red Army, not really much they can do. Uh, we've said this over and yeah. over again in the Yalta conference. Uh, unless they're willing to just stay there and go to war immediately with Stalin, uh, there's just not a lot that can be accomplished in arguing over Poland.
2: Uh, That's poss- right. Possession That's is right. nine-tenths of the law, right? Right, you still got a war with Japan that you have to sort out. Um, you know, how many Americans are, are American political leaders willing to see die over moving that border a, a couple of miles one way or the other? And you know, Eisenhower understood it. Marshall understood it. That the answer to that question is is precious few.
0: Okay, what about the uh, the sheep in sheep's clothing, uh, Clement Attlee?
2: <laughs> Attlee to me is a kind of fascinating figure. Um, you know, he had that that that. Reputation as a kind of mild-mannered, bookish, you know, uh, uh, people referred to him, you know, someone who looks like a banker or looks like a university <laughs> professor. Um, you know, but Attlee had a, a remarkably strong reputation, much stronger than we often think of in retrospect. He's the second to last guy off the Gallipoli beaches in 1915. Um, he's an adamant anti-fascist in the Spanish Civil War period, helping out the Republicans. Um, you know, he, he he, you know, he's a bit of an, you know, in some ways, he is a bit out of his depth. I think at first, which is why he, you know, relies so much on Bevan, uh, who's a kind of bigger, more imposing kind of figure um, at the conference. Um, but at least clearly a smart man. He can clearly see what's happening. He can clearly see the threats uh, to Britain's empire, um, and he can clearly see that that the Labour Party is going to have limited options um, in 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 what's going to happen. So that simply by coming into Number Ten Downing Street none of that changes the fundamental problems that Great Britain is facing.
0: I like to describe Attlee as imagine a balding Adolf Hitler borrowing Himmler's
2: glasses. That's... <laughs> physically, that works. I don't know. I, know. I mean, you know, you, you, the other thing about Attlee, uh, of course, is that he has this idea that what what Britain really needs to do at the end of the Second World War is is less its foreign policy face than it is to fix what's going on at home to make hmm. sure that at the end of the war, you don't end up going into a, an unjust society at the end of the war. You have to create a society to borrow the old end of World War One phrase that can truly be a land fit for heroes. You have to have, you know, an, an, an economic Uh, distribution system that's reasonably equitable uh the final decision to go into something like the nea the 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 health service and nhs that they do in britain uh fair housing all these things that's what he really wants to do Mm. Uh, foreign policy is going to have to be something he's going to have to fix so that he can then go ahead and do that um and that's a tremendous challenge
0: and the last uh of our major cast of characters i wanted to ask you about the man who should be president jimmy burns
2: yeah burns you know um I have to say one of these figures, if I were interested in writing a biography, I mean, I think Burns would be a fascinating guy to write one about. Um, No college education at all um, who went to the Supreme Court, that is, was on the Supreme Court, uh, was in the Senate, was in the House, was a governor, uh, was in the cabinet as Secretary of State under Truman. I mean, just this fascinating, fascinating guy who is everywhere and is— doing everything at the highest levels of the U S government. Um, he's got a really nasty, uh, segregationist side to him. Um, I've worked in his papers. It doesn't seem like his wife or his children really wanted to preserve much of his legacy because his papers are not, they're not as voluminous as, as, as most people that have had this kind of careers papers ought to be. He's kind of mysterious. It's hard to get a read on him. It's hard to really figure him out. Um, but he's clearly the guy who comes in as Truman's right-hand man until they disagree over the issue of segregation and civil rights. Uh, and Byrne starts doing the hard work that has to get done. He starts angling to get some of these cabinet officials out. Um, he starts angling to get other people in. Uh, and he's working very, very hard to, to do what a secretary of state has to do, which is to figure out what the nation's core interests are, which is in itself not an easy thing, and then to figure out what resources the state has to to push towards those interests so in a way he's really fascinating to me and in another way he's really really difficult to get a handle on Um, and then of course it is that hardcore art segregationist side of him that 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 is so distasteful and so hard to 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 see Um, you know he was also at paris in 1919 with woodrow wilson After World War II, he's the guy that starts encouraging the Dixiecrats in 1948, and he's apparently the guy who talked to Barry Goldwater and helped talk him into the Republican Party's uh, Southern strategy in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So the guy is literally everywhere, and we know almost nothing about him. Wow.
0: (laughs) Wow. Yeah, and as uh, we will see as we cover it, uh, the next few episodes plays a fairly significant role, I think, in... um, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in, in uh, being in Truman's ear regarding, you know, what what should or shouldn't happen with the bomb. And also I, I kind of find him fascinating in as much as uh, I remember reading in a biography of Truman that Burns' private diaries and letters around about this time, he doesn't speak very highly of Truman at all. No. He has a very low opinion of Truman. Truman though, on the other hand has a very high opinion of Burns and uh, kind of sees him as his saviour, I think, in the early uh, months of his presidency. But Burns
2: didn't have a lot of respect for Truman. Well, I think there had to have been a little bit of Burns every time he walked into the Oval Office thinking that should have been me, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. uh, You know, I'm the guy with the Rolodex. I'm the guy that knows everybody. I'm the guy that probably quite literally knows where the bodies are buried. Um, I'm the guy that can keep this... You know, the Democratic Party is this strange mix of kind of northern progressives, urban northern progressives and southern segregationists. You know, and and he's thinking I'm the guy that can keep that coalition. I can hold it together. Truman can't. Um, You know, he's every time he walked into the Oval Office, he must have just thought whatever Truman is doing, I can do it better. Uh, And instead he ends up um, in the secretary of state's job, which is an important, incredibly important position. But I have a good friend who works for the State Department. And his line is always, you know, we always end up getting the people who don't quite get to the presidency. You know, they always <laughs> somehow end up as Secretary of State. Um, so I can certainly see, you know, from the human side, where Burns might have had some some issues with that. And then there is the major disagreement that they have on the issue of civil rights. Burns is a died-in-the-wool Southern segregationist, and Truman is trying to find a way to. Make modifications to that by desegregating the army, you know, all of these things that Truman's trying to do to create a society that is not only more just at home, but can allow the United States to position itself better as morally superior to the Soviets when America is doing foreign policy. And Burns is, is again, holding on to that that arch segregationist um, view. He was a South Carolinian. You know, he, he, he just it's one of those things in him that to him is just not compromisable.
0: Well, thank you for that sort of broad brush overview of those characters, Uh, Michael. Ray, do you want to jump into the first of the questions that we prepared?
1: Yes, that'd that'd be great. Um, Okay, so, Mr. Nyberg, you state in the introduction of your book that you think the role of Potsdam played in fueling the Cold War was rather small. So what do you think were the turning points that led to the Cold War?
2: Well, I think, you know, it happens just after Potsdam. But, of course, the use of the atomic bomb scares the Soviets tremendously. Uh, mm. That, that you know, they're going to – everything that they did, all the suffering, everything that they lost, uh, that, that, that it's going to all be for naught. Because the Americans, at least temporarily, are going to have this tremendous technological edge over them. Um, I think the initial agreements at Potsdam to deal with Germany are okay on paper. The problem is that over time they become extraordinarily difficult – uh, to, to actually operationalize on the ground. And that's another problem into 1946 and into 1947. Um, I think those two things and probably the civil war in China are the things that really begin to kind of unravel things. And then there's this series of other decisions, America's decision to reintroduce conscription, um, uh, the, the dual speeches, the one that Stalin gives in which he predicts the future of conflict with capitalism Uh, And then the response by Winston Churchill that becomes the the famous Iron Curtain speech. So but, you know, the main point I wanted to make is that at the end of the Potsdam conference, even if Truman later thought they were naive when they believed it, almost everybody walked away from Potsdam on the Western side, thinking either that they had cut a deal with the Soviets or that they could somehow work with these people as the years moved forward. Uh, Now, as the years unfold, of course, the United States and Britain begin to realize that You know, this really is a a regime with interests and with values that are completely incompatible with those of the West. But that's not the conclusion they had in August 1945, and that's what I was interested in.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I can uh, uh, imagine myself being in Stalin's shoes at the time when the bomb's being used. I mean, he's supposedly an ally of the United States and the United Kingdom at the time, yet he knows they've been developing this bomb in secret uh for the last uh, five years or so and uh they're not sharing it with him they know he knows they're sh- you know working on it together collaborating but they're not sharing it with him their ally and in fact uh are kind of fudging about it even <laughs> do you want to tell the story about uh how Truman broke the news to <laughs> Stalin about the bomb at Potsdam
2: yeah so they're trying to do it in a way that that is non-threatening. So Truman made this decision that he would just kind of go up informally to Stalin, not use the word atomic, but inform him that they had a you know, a weapon of unprecedented power or some such. I forget the exact phrase that Truman uses. And there are conflicting reports about how Stalin responded to this. What we know for sure, that Truman didn't know, is that the news was not such a surprise to Stalin. He knew the general outlines and knew some of the technical details of what they were doing in New Mexico. Um, but Stalin is supposed to have just sort of said, oh, a new bomb, how, how interesting, how wonderful, and kind of walked away. Um, and the Americans and British took that to mean that he didn't really understand what, what he'd right. just been told. But, of course, he perfectly well understood what he'd just been told. Um, so, you know, there's that. There's also, you know, I keep thinking of George Kennan's great, great description of the Soviet Union, where he said that the Second World War had brought out all of the worst aspects of the Soviet system, and that one of those aspects was their paranoia. Um so if you follow Kennan and Kennan knew the Soviet Union as well as any Westerner knew it um you know you can understand why this that the atomic bomb previous to that the, the delay in invading France until 1944 you know all of these things um if if the system is paranoid to start with why it would just continue to fuel and feed that paranoia
0: and he was well i mean paranoid or suspicious at least for good reason he knew Stalin knew incontrovertibly that the Americans weren't telling him everything and that the Americans and the British were, you know, plotting behind his back to a certain
2: degree. Right. He also knew that, you know, this is a fundamental rule of international relations, but it's often forgotten, I think, that allies don't necessarily share interests. So, you know, the Soviet Union, the United States and Britain had a common interest in seeing the defeat of Germany, but... Mm. Stalin well knew that the Americans and British might rebuild Germany in the post-war period as they tried to rebuild it in the 1920s, um, that there were interests in the post-war period that the Soviets simply didn't share. Mm. Uh, and again, what Alan Brooke picked up right away, that, that that the atomic bombs are difficult to use, but you can threaten their use. And that, I think, was another thing that, that the Soviets were responding to. You see it today with Iran, North Korea, their justification for pursuing nuclear weapons is that it's a kind of ultimate guarantee not only of sovereignty, but that you can be immune from outside coercion. And mm-hmm. you know, you can see from from Stalin's view why such an approach might be the the, the, the right answer. Hmm. The the mutual destruction argument that sort of formed the, the, the center
0: point of the Cold War, I guess, ever since nineteen forty five Um, You mentioned in your book that you think the leaders at Potsdam really saw themselves as trying to solve the problems of 1914.
2: Mm. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Sure. I mean, I think this comes from my own background in First World War history, and it was the first thing that kind of struck me as I was starting to to look into this. But all of these people are products of the First World War, all of them. Burns, as I said, was was in Paris in 1919. Churchill, of course, uh, Truman was a, a captain of artillery. I mean, all of these guys had watched with their own eyes as a military victory in 1918 had, had gone like sand through their hands and had just gone away and left the world a much worse place. Now they're looking at a world in which there's similarities to that, but they also know about the Holocaust. They know about atomic weaponry. They know about the Chinese Civil War. They know about all this stuff that's beginning to brew. And their concern is that they're going to make the same mistakes that were made a generation earlier. So what I see them motivated by is not the Cold War that they don't yet know is going to happen, though there's certainly some indications that it might. What they're motivated by is their own memory. And, and to me, this seems quite natural and quite human. When we as humans see a large event, the first thing we normally do is make analogies to it in our own heads, whether that's a politician saying, well, this is just like that or in your own personal life saying, okay, well, I remember when this happened to me. Uh, it's what people do. It's, it's how politicians and journalists and human beings use history. They, they pluck historical examples that they think are appropriate to the crisis at hand. And the obvious historical analogy to Potsdam is the Treaty of Versailles and all of the mistakes that they believe that, that, that the treaty had, had uh, brought forth, um, not least of which calling it a treaty, which meant that w- Woodrow Wilson had to bring it to the United States Senate for verification. Instead, in this case, Truman said, look, there is no treaty. All we have is a series of diplomatic agreements. Therefore, it doesn't have to go before the Senate. And Truman being very smart uh, and getting congressional approval for the United Nations, for Bretton Woods uh, economic agreements before he went to Potsdam so that he wouldn't have to go through the same fights that he knew had quite literally killed Woodrow Wilson. Hmm. If-
1: if I can add on to that, so the big three are sitting around the table, the war is over in Europe, but I've just got to imagine, and, and you said this in your book, I mean, uh, Truman's going there to deal with Germany. He's not there. He's not going there to pick a fight with Stalin, but how do these three men sitting at this table view what the problems are to be solved in this post-war Europe?
2: So I think it's obviously, it's very different for each of the three. Um, mm-hmm. So for Truman, he's aware that the United States will probably carry the lion's share of the war against Japan. Even if the atomic weapon works, it doesn't necessarily guarantee Japanese surrender. Um, It doesn't necessarily guarantee the surrender of all the Japanese troops that are in China, for sure. So Truman's looking at an America that will, A, have to fight the war with Japan. B, remember, there's no plan to keep the American army at 8 million or 6 million or 4 million or even 2 million men. The plan is to demobilize it as quickly as you possibly can. So the main instrument of American power, which is military, is going to dwindle as soon as the war ends. And Truman is looking at a situation where he, he he like, like Attlee, wants to get back to the United States and solve domestic problems. He doesn't really want to be a foreign policy president. So to him, what that means is getting the problems of Europe fixed, getting them stable, getting the continent to a place where it can manage itself so that the United States doesn't have to come back, which is not the plan. I mean, it does happen, of course, within a very few short years. But that's not the plan for Churchill and, and later for Attlee, They know that Britain will also play a role in the Pacific War. But then, of course, Britain's going to have, I mean, any number of headaches. They're going to have to go back to Hong Kong. They're going to have to go back to Singapore. They're going to have to go back to India. They're going to have to go to Palestine. And they're going to have to figure out a way to rebuild that structure, that imperial structure that they had. Um, that also argues for a calm, safe, stable Europe that they don't have to be worried about quite so much. And of course, as we've already discussed, I mean, Russia's main strategic goal is to make sure that they set Europe in such a way that they don't get invaded from that direction again. So there are ways in which those strategic goals actually do kind of overlap. Uh, Germany, of course, being the key here to figure out what to do with Germany and how to make sure that you create a Germany that is strong enough to contribute to the overall security of Europe, but not strong enough to create any threats to any of the three states that 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 I just mentioned, and that's just a small slice. I mean, you have to figure out what to do with France and Italy. Do you treat them as conquered countries or do you treat them as liberated ones? Uh, what do you do with Poland? What do you do with the Middle East? What do you, I mean, all of these things that are very much open questions. Um, and so, you know, at Potsdam, what they're trying to do is come to a kind of general sense of agreements. And I personally think, as I argued in the book, that when in doubt, they kind of do the opposite of whatever had been done at Versailles. So at Versailles they they imposed massive reparations on Germany that in the view of the 1930s was quite destabilizing. Uh, at Potsdam, the British, the Americans and the French sort of agree not to pull reparations out. And the Russians agree to take their reparations in kind rather than as money. So they just take everything they can out of Eastern Germany. Um, to say, look, we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna have 25 years of reparations that the Germans may or may not pay. We're just gonna take everything we can get that's not nailed down. And that'll be our reparations. Um, so they, they really do try to do things the opposite way. I mean, the, the the Paris Peace Conference was this enormous, lengthy, six-month international affair with everybody coming and going. And, you know, Ho Chi Minh is there. And, I mean, you know, all these people. Uh, Potsdam is done behind gates. Uh, there's no journalists for a few days until the journalists start to create problems. There's Russian guards, shoot you know, threatening to shoot people everywhere. And it's basically a group of about 15 people that are doing these negotiations. Um, with a big support staff to help them, but they do it exactly the opposite of the way it had been done in Paris.
0: And I, and you make the point in the book that it's basically three white men who sit in the room yeah. and work it out. France, Italy, China, none of these other players are really, Poland, aren't really given a seat at the table to participate in these conversations.
2: Nope, And I was thinking about, you know, Thomas Kuhn's famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which isn't about history at all, but... Ah, uh, Kuhn talks about you know when scientists start to detect anomalies in the system and anomalies in their theories, and I think you know one of the things that I noticed that I observed is that they don't the anomaly they don't figure out is that the post-war world they're just not going to be able to go back to places like India, even the Philippines for the United States, which is a slightly different case because the U.S. had promised it its independence, but the Europeans are simply not going to be able to walk back into those places the way they had before. Uh, the French learn this in a very bloody way in Indochina. The British learn it very quickly in India. Um, you know, I, this same friend of mine, who's a State Department official, who's a diplomat, um, he he goes to India quite frequently, and the thing that he's always struck by are the power and the permanence of these buildings that the British built in the 1930s in India. These enormous buildings that they built, and to my friend, this is a this is evidence that the British in the 30s never thought they were going to leave India mm-hmm. by 19 by 1945 almost anybody who's looking from India can see that the British can't come back. Um, And again, the British think that they can for for a a short period of time. Um, So to me, what was interesting is they haven't figured out the big paradigm shift because they're looking backward, they're not looking forward. They haven't figured out that what the Second World War did is make it impossible for imperialism to continue in the form that it had existed, even as late as, say, 1938,
0: 1939.
1: I have the feeling that... I I just want to... Sorry, Ray. Go ahead. I just want just one. I know I know we're running out of time, but I just have to ask you to comment very quickly on what the press had to do in order to get access to these people. (laughs) I found that staggering in your in your speech.
2: Yeah. So they're they're completely locked out. I mean, the the most important thing that's happening in the world is going on and they, they can't get in. They can't they can't talk to anybody. They can't see what's going on. So they start reporting uh, on these lavish parties that are being thrown. And they are lavish parties that are being thrown. Um, Potsdam was also the headquarters of the German film industry. It was kind of Germany's Hollywood. And so there are these uh, famous studios that were producing German films before the war that are the scenes of these enormous parties. And, you know, uh, the British are uh, at one point, I think it's I think it's Truman who wants different sheet music for the piano. So. They send a plane to go to Paris and get the right sheet music, and you know, I mean, like whatever these guys want, they get. Um, so the press starts reporting on this. To get them to stop reporting, they they have to let them in. They have to they have to give them daily briefings. They have to, you know, tell them what's what's being discussed at highest levels, because otherwise, all they would report on were these incredible parties that were being thrown, and I mean, they're incredible parties uh, that are being that are being thrown um, in order to get. press not to do that they have to finally give them a little bit of access um the soviets don't want it but the british and americans are coming from systems where it's really hard to keep journalists away from a major story like that for significant periods of time amazing um
0: michael uh, let's talk about um the the role of uh the atom bomb a little bit more if we can before we wrap up um so Truman goes over there without I think the first test in uh, New Mexico happens while he's in Potsdam correct
2: that's right yes that's right hmm.
0: so yeah uh, the uh, uh, forgive me if this isn't uh, a, an area of expertise of yours but What was the view from your perspective of the majority of military and political leaders in the United States at the time about whether or not they should uh, use the bomb on Japan, whether or not they needed to use the bomb and morally
2: should use the bomb? So I I really can't find too much evidence that that question kept anybody really all that occupied in 1945. Uh, you know, However many millions of people, again, we, we really, the margins of error are with, are in millions, are dead. Um, you know, th- There are reasonable estimates of the number of Americans and Japanese who will die from an invasion. Um, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of scholarship about this, but I, I can't find any evidence that at Potsdam or even the discussions kind of around it, that there's really much of a debate. Uh, the, the goal is to get the war over as quickly as possible. Uh, the atomic bomb allows that to happen. Uh, it allows the United States to 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 do that without having to invade the Japanese home islands. You know all of those things that are going on. I, I just can't find any evidence that anybody was really worried about it. That anybody was really concerned. Um, those concerns come later, I think. Um, in in July, August, 1945, I can't find really a lot of debate about what to do. the The, the only debate is really whether it's going to work. And what do you do if you do this and you have to invade anyway?
0: What about the theory that Japan, A, had been trying to surrender, had been trying to open up diplomatic back channels for quite some time, and B, once the Soviets announced that their treaty with Japan uh, wouldn't be renewed and they were entering the war with them, that that would then have forced the Japanese to surrender?
2: Do you buy those stories? I mean, I think they're both, from the perspective of 1945, highly theoretical. So Japan, yes, Japan is is putting out diplomatic feelers, but not for the kind of peace that the United States wants. So uh, the United States wanted an unconditional surrender from Japan, not some sort of negotiated peace, which, again, from the perspective of 1945, seems perfectly understandable as an historian, to to figure that one out. Um, And the United States did, you know, the Potsdam Declaration that comes out at the end of the conference allows the emperor to stay on the throne. It says, you know, we're not going to take in away any of the Japanese home islands. We're not going to dismember Japan. So unconditional surrender came with some caveats. Uh, but the United States wasn't interested in sitting down and doing a negotiation with Japan. So I think the first point is easily dismissed. The second one about the Soviets, the role of the Soviet Union in this particular case was not to do an amphibious invasion of the northern Japanese islands. There were one million Japanese soldiers in mainland China the goal of the soviets was to do exactly what they did which was to invade manchuria to make the point that when you surrender the home islands the japanese army in china can't continue to fight on and remember it's that army it's the so-called manchukuo army that is the, the 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 group in the in japan that pushes the china incidents in the 1930s you know they're seen as the most radical least compromising most militarist most aggressive part of the Japanese army, and there's a million of them in China, so the the goal of the Soviet Union, from America's perspective, is not necessarily to go to the Japanese home islands, but to put that pressure on mainland China itself.
0: But still, once uh, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, uh, do you think that would have forced the the uh, Japanese military and the emperor to accept that they uh, that it
2: was over? I mean. I think it's it's difficult. Two things: it's difficult to get a picture of that even now, decades later. And second, I, I also think, put yourself in the mindset of 1945. It's not unreasonable to understand. It's not difficult to understand why American leaders simply didn't want to put any faith in what the Japanese might have to say. Um, and you know, you can take that positively, or you can take that. And what I mean by positively is, you can take it by understanding the war and the war that had just happened, and everything the United States had done, Okinawa. I mean, all the things that had happened, uh, the Japanese treatment of American POWs, going all the way back to the attack on Pearl Harbor itself. And of course, I think it's important to understand the anti-Asian racism that's playing in here as well. What what John Dower called the war without mercy, that is going on. That that made it very difficult for the two sides to sit down and have any kind of expect any kind of negotiation that would produce a compromise peace. Uh, the, the atomic bomb, seemingly in 1945, gives the Americans everything they want at very little cost to the United States.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah. Now, now, Dower has argued. I should I should note Dower has argued that the atomic bomb was the only thing that could have made Japan surrender. It was the only thing that could have proven to the Japanese that further fighting was in fact completely futile and 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 completely worthless. So that the atomic bomb in Dower's mind, is the thing that makes Japan surrender. And subsequent people have argued that by surrendering, Japanese casualties are actually lower than they would have been had there been an invasion of the home islands. Now, I'm not enough of a specialist in Japan to know how to argue either one of those points, but they both seem to me to be prima facie reasonable things to conclude.
0: Well, just to wrap up then, if we can, Michael, you mentioned before that coming out of Potsdam, there was a, a generally good feeling between the key players, Um, and certainly I think that was true coming out of Yalta as well. All these, the the three principles at Yalta, and I think the, well, the three principles at the end of Potsdam, all seem to be fairly, they kind of, I would say they liked each other, they admired each other uh, to varying degrees. Um, They, well, I mean, okay, I don't think Stalin really admired anybody, apart from maybe Roosevelt. (laughs)
2: Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> but I think that's probably right.
0: <laughs> but they, they did seem to feel like they had a, a working relationship. And in Stalin's um, private letters to Molotov and Mosky and people like that in uh, this period, you know, he sort of seems to be talking about a twenty-year peace, twenty-five-year peace that he wants to achieve because mm-hmm. they need it to rebuild because they're screwed. They're completely screwed economically infrastructure militarily well militarily they've got a big army but they they they've taken a lot a lot of damage a lot of blows um, talk to me a little bit about um, you know why you think they felt so positively about each other coming out were they were they kidding themselves was a genuine uh, what was going
2: on in their heads as they departed Potsdam I think there's a little bit of kidding themselves and and very quickly Truman says, I was naive. I didn't really understand what what they were up against. But I also think, again, you have to put yourself in the mind of July, August, 1945. They had done it. They had taken the British Empire, which, remember, is not something that most Americans felt terribly warmly about in the 1930s, the Soviet Union, which very few Americans felt good about in the 1930s, and the United States, this capitalist society that the British and Soviets had also had some suspicions about, and the three of them had done it. They had come together, they had defeated the Nazis. The terrible evil of the Nazis had been fully revealed in 1945. It hadn't been really until 1944 that the death camps are, are really proven beyond any any question. So in 1945, I could see where, where those three groups of people could sit together and say, we did it. We did it. We we won this. The, the post-war world is ours. And and of course they do that by giving themselves UN Security Council veto seats. Um you know, we are the conquerors. We did this, um, and I think it's not unreasonable to presume that they came out of Potsdam, understanding that there would be disagreements, understanding that there would be difficulties, but that there was a way forward to to deal with those, at least for the next five, six, seven years, whatever it's going to be, until some crisis happens. Uh, but they came away thinking, okay, we know each other. We, we we're now, Churchill's not here, Roosevelt's not here. This is a new generation. We're going to be able to work with this. We're going to be able to do it. And they walk away thinking that, that that's what they've accomplished. Now, as I said, it, it it doesn't take very long for Truman to realize, hey, this guy, this Stalin played me. This Stalin actually outmaneuvered me. And it doesn't take very long for people like George Kennan to tell Truman, you really don't understand what you're up against here. But there is that period when they walk away, no one's talking about a Cold War. No one's talking about um, hey, we're going to have to fight these guys. You know what they're coming away with is we can do business, we can negotiate, we can, we can deal. Uh, now I think, you know, it's a little bit like what my friend said about Justin Trudeau when he was elected Prime Minister of Canada that they they were deciding the easy stuff, at Potsdam they were giving away other people's land. Uh, by 1947, 48, 49, they're starting to deal with issues that are much more central. They're starting to deal with the tough things that they're trying to deal with, and that's what, of course, it got a little bit more difficult. But in the summer of forty five they're they're conquerors.
0: They've done it. You you, you referred to Truman afterwards saying uh that I was a little bit naive. What about Stalin coming out of Potsdam? Like he I think in the book you uh mentioned that he referred to uh, to, to to Molotov uh that the Americans were using the bomb as a form of blackmail against the mm-hmm. Soviets. How did how do you think he felt coming out of it, and and afterwards? Did he feel betrayed as well, or did he feel like he had pulled the wool over everybody's eyes?
2: You know, I think to feel betrayal, you have to have a lot of confidence and faith in somebody, right? I mean, you have to, you know, you, you feel you know you, you feel betrayal in people that you you put your your love in, your trust, in, your finances in. And then they do something that you don't expect. And and Stalin never expected the Western capitalist societies to give him a fair shake. So I, 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 you know, he's the hardest of the guys, obviously, to understand. But it's hard for me to see him coming away feeling betrayed. Uh, He understood that. He had gotten most of what he wanted. He was going to be able to control Poland. He was going to have a say in in the final disposition of Germany. Uh, There were active communist parties in France and Italy that would give him opportunities and things to do. He was going to have a chance to go into China, um, and that chance in China might give him a chance to reshape parts of of what Japan's future would look like. Uh, But he also came away, as Kennan noted, paranoid, uh, of fearing that the capitalists were just gearing up to go after the Soviets again. Um, So I I think, you know, Kennan... Kennan's the guy I follow because, to me, he's the guy who's figured it out. He's the guy who understands uh, both the strengths and weaknesses of the Soviet system, and that he also understood the internal contradictions of the Soviet system, that that providing security for the Soviet Union meant taking everything else away, and that sooner or later that system rotten from the inside would collapse, uh, and that the United States pushing on it was not going to help that collapse. That collapse was going to come from inside. Uh, which is the core, of course, of the ideas that later become the containment theory. Um, So, you know, to me, betrayal is probably the wrong word. I think a satisfaction that he had done what he had to do at that moment, but that that didn't mean that the Soviet Union was safe or secure. Mm.
0: Speaking of Ken, I heard a great interview recently with uh, his daughter, uh, who's just got a book out, I think. Have you uh, come across that yet? No, I haven't. I'll
2: have to check that out.
0: Grace Kennan uh, Warnicky, yeah, she's got a book out, "Daughter of the Cold War." I think I had an interview with her about her father. It's fascinating, and you know, she
2: obviously grew up in a lot, a big part of her life in Moscow during this. Yeah, period. in fact, and Kennan. I mean, you know, when NSC sixty eight is passed, which is the great rearming of the United States in nineteen fifty, the great spending bill, they, they don't have the debate. Nitzy, Paul Nitze didn't have the debate until he knew Kennan was in South America. Because he knew that Kennan was the one guy who could argue people out of it. Mm. Um, so, you know, Kennan to me is is just this incredibly important intellectual figure uh, in thinking through the entire Cold War. So the title of that book is is exactly on point.
0: Oh, Ray, do you have uh, anything uh, to wrap up that you want to say or ask Michael? <laughs>
1: Well, first of all, I just enjoyed your book very much and I learned a lot, but I, when I finished reading it, it, it dawned on me to touch on something you said a minute ago, that the victors were under the influence of a victor's high, feeling pretty good about themselves, okay. tackling stuff they had to tackle at the time. But you're right, a lot of the harder questions are going to come later when their attitudes or feelings towards each other are obviously different then.
2: Yeah, and it's important to remember. I mean, the the big controversy becomes the United States and Soviet Union, the United States and British on one side and Soviets on the other. But there are plenty of Americans who see Great Britain as as big a problem in 1945, almost as big a problem as the Soviet Union, because the British are going to want to go back and, and reconquer the empire. And the United States just was absolutely opposed to it for ideological reasons, economic reasons, and Cold War emerging Cold War reasons. The United States didn't want the British tied down in a war in India or Palestine when it needed to be focused on this growing power of the Soviet Union. So again, I, I really try to push back on this notion of a special relationship, which existed only when American and British interests clearly overlapped, and they overlapped less frequently than people think they did.
0: And then the United States ended up Going and fighting those wars to uh, protect its economic
2: empire anyway. I think it, part of it too is, is just the way that the Cold War sort of became everything. So that the United States badly misread what was happening in Vietnam as a, as a, as a battleground of the Cold War, which it really was not. Um, so that you know, the Cold War became so all-encompassing uh, that the United States read everything through that lens. Uh, and that was a mistake of policymakers of that age, of both parties, who were having a very difficult time to come back to Thomas Kuhn to see that the the, the paradigms had shifted, to see the ways in which the world was changing around them very quickly. And just to, to, to finish the thought, well, from what you noted earlier, this is one of the things I try to work with with my students, is to help them think through how you recognize what changes that you're living through are really fundamental and which changes may look fundamental but are really superficial, and that's an incredibly difficult intellectual skill for anybody. And it's one that mm. you know I, I think the discipline of history really helps us to understand.
0: Mm. I well, shouldn't
2: say understand; sheds light on.
0: Mm, right. We couldn't agree more, Michael. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we spent a lot of time trying to uh, uh, explain why understanding history is important to understanding what's going on today and and what will happen tomorrow. Look, thank you so much for taking time out to come and chat with us, and and thank you again for the book. It's a terrific piece of work. Uh, Are you working on anything at the moment that we should uh, keep our eyes out for? What's next for you?
2: Yeah, I'm working on a project looking at uh, how Palestine-Israel went from being predominantly a British problem in 1942 to being something the United States uh, is deeply engaged in by 1950. And my challenge right now is to keep that book historical and not to let the things that are going on in the news right now um, reflect the way that I'm working on the book, because, of course, it was in the news just yesterday. Um, so I, I really want to understand that world of 1942, 1950, which comes back to some of the themes from Potsdam, but it, it actually is a more global, um, more I- encompassing globally kind of problem even than Potsdam was. So uh, I'm doing something uh, that is temporarily similar to Potsdam, but I think conceptually is even a little bit harder.
0: Well, I'd love to get you back on to talk about that because we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about Israel and
2: Palestine on the show, so it'd be great. Uh, That'd be great. I mean, I really want to understand just where the origins of this are uh, and and how the United States went from trying to solve a relatively small problem to where we are now trying to solve a relatively big problem. All right. Thank you again, Michael. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much. I'm hoping to get back to Australia. I've been there twice, but never to Queensland, so maybe one day.
0: Well, if you do, let me know. Beers
2: on me. <laughs> Will do. Sounds great.
0: <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Good night, guys. Well, Michael Nyberg, there he is. There he was. There he went. What did you think of that? That raid. <laughs> did you uh, learn anything new?
1: Oh yes, just just the. Um, oh my goodness, just what what they the mentality when they were going in, how they. Thought they had really accomplished something coming out that I th- I think you're right they thought they could have a working relationship with each other but probably nothing more but even that starts to fall apart as they start to tackle the tackle the more tougher issues um, his book was absolutely amazing and the speeches he's given which you can find on YouTube are are very well done as well
0: yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and the great thing about the book is he deliberately didn't do a blow-by-blow, he-said-she-said kind of approach. He's trying to tackle it more at a broader, higher-level issue about the the personalities and that kind of stuff. So it's a great read. Check it out if you're interested in drilling down. We're going to drill down over the next few episodes as well, but definitely check out Michael's book. I hope he comes back and talks about Israel, Palestine, and the United States. That should be fun. If we're all still here. Yes. When the book comes out. Yes. 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 Thanks for that, Mr. Trump. <laughs> I uh, was interested in his views on the use of the bomb in Japan. Yeah, um, His position on that certainly differs from at least one of the other uh, scholars I've read who's specialized in The Decision. Um, and hopefully we'll get him on the show uh, soon. I guess I should reach out to him because we're getting up to that point in the story. Anyway, um, valid uh, point of view, though, nonetheless. So terrific to have somebody on who teaches history to senior U.S. military figures. It's fascinating.
1: Right. We should have tried to influence him more. Um, Maybe next time. All right. That's
0: the show. We'll be back.
1: has descended across the continent.
2: Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba, the purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.